This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Here we are in the middle, uh, in chapter 13, we're, we're in this middle portion of about eight different parables in chapter 13. We looked at the parable of the sower last week. We're going to look at three parables this week. We're going to continue looking at these parables of Jesus. From this point all the way up until when Jesus is murdered on the cross, when he's crucified, one third of all his teaching is going to be parables. Parables make understanding certain truths easier, but it also hides certain truth to where it's, it's almost more difficult to understand the truth sometimes. For some, it makes it easier. For some, it makes it more difficult. Jesus is teaching uh, as in the form of, of parable. It's, uh, it literally means to compare, the word parable. Um, it is a metaphor. Um, such and such is like this. And the way Jesus uses it here with these particular parables is the kingdom of God is like and he goes into these things. He illustrates it. He gives us a tangible depiction of a cosmic truth. All right? That's why he's always like the kingdom of God is like this so that we can see it, a portion of it, explained using everyday um, examples, unpacking little by little what the kingdom of God is going to be like. He, he, he helps us take something that's abstract and multidimensional, like the kingdom of God, and allows us to, to have a very concrete, uh, easy to grasp and understand uh, glimpse of the kingdom. But again, sometimes when people view these very same parables, they have more questions than answers. And these disciples even ask uh, about this particular parable that we're looking at this morning. So there's a, there's a parable of the weeds and wheat that we're going to look at. And there's going to be a couple other smaller parables that we're going to hang out on. And then we're going to have him explain the parable of the wheat and the weeds at the end, okay? So it's going to be broken up, but that's the way that this text is handled in Matthew 13, so we're going to take it the way that we were, it was given to us. So look at uh, Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be starting in verse 24, all right? <clears throat> Jesus, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. If you ever weeded a flower bed or a garden, you know the risk that he's speaking of here. Let both, verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So first, I want us to notice this parable here has three features to it, three, three significant parts to it, okay? First, there's the work of the farmer. He sows wheat. He sows good seed, and the crop begins to grow. But then the second feature is the work of the enemy. Now, the enemy comes in, and he sows a counter crop, 
Most historians believe that the weeds that Jesus is referring to in this parable is zazania. Now, you, would, you don't want to plant zazania anywhere near wheat. It was, it was one of the great irritations of a wheat farmer in this part of the world in this time where Matthew uh, is, is writing here uh, in this interaction with Jesus. You see, it is a degenerate form of wheat. It looks like wheat. It grows up like wheat. Um, it grows in the fields along with wheat if you're not very careful. But it, it, when it comes into maturity, there's zero grain. Um, you, you have the heads of the wheat that you pluck, but with zazania, there, there, is, there is no heads of grain to pluck. It's only the stalk. Even when we use it today, we get wild rice from zazania. Um, it's out of the stalk that you get this and not from the tops like you do wheat. So not only is that an issue of just not being fruitful, what it does is when it grows alongside wheat, uh, it would rob nutrients, it would rob moisture, it would stunt the growth of the wheat. Now notice here with this sowing of the enemy's seed that there's a time between the sowing and the reaping, between the, the sowing and the harvest, where not only does the crop of the farmer grow, but the crop of the enemy grows as well. They contest each other. They oppose one another. The third feature is the patience of the farmer. And you see that in verses 29 and 30. The farmer's reaction to the work of the enemy is not that of panic. He says, be patient. Right now, things are confused. Right now, it's difficult to discern what's what, but there will be a judgment. Eventually, we will be able to judge between wheat and weeds. Eventually, the weeds will be taken up and burned, and eventually, the wheat will be brought to me, but right now, be patient. So those are the three features of this first parable. There, there's been a time of seeding, of sowing a good crop. There's been a time period in which the two crops grow side by side one another, but eventually, everything will be made clear, and you'll be able to discern which is which. But meanwhile, be patient. So what does it mean beyond that? Why would Jesus throw this out here to the crowds? Well, he's going to tell us, but first let's work through two similar, similar smaller parables, similar in regards to the kingdom. Verse 31, Jesus, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So the kingdom, this is the picture of the kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating is small and insignificant at this time as he's teaching this parable. But it's growing, has grown, and will continue to grow, and eventually grow all throughout eternity and be helpful for many, from people who are not just of the tribe of Israel, but people who are of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation who trust in Jesus and who believe in him. This is what he's getting at here with this particular parable. There is hope found here in these words of Jesus. Jesus lived perfectly. He was crucified. He was murdered. Jesus was sown, if you will, to the earth. He was buried. 
But he burst forth from death and brought new life to not only himself, but also for all those who would place their hope in him. Meager, humble, small beginning of God made flesh in the form of a baby, being born in a barn, but now and forever, he will be king of all things. And even right now, he's seated on the throne of all creation, ruling over his kingdom. Insignificant size does not limit the potential of his kingdom. That's the point of the mustard seed and the great tree. Yes, his beginning was small and seemingly insignificant. However, his kingdom has grown larger and larger and continues to grow even today. As people all over the world hear the bad news of the gospel and the good news of the gospel and respond to him in faith and belief. But his kingdom is much more helpful than providing mere nests for birds. His kingdom provides security, contentment, and comfort. All these things are found in the arms of God forever and ever. For those who will place their hope in him, they find these things eternally, epically in him and him alone. So this is that parable explained. Look at verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. This is a form of yeast. It's leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The big idea here regarding the kingdom, the kingdom is like, the kingdom cannot be stopped. We cannot mess this up, nor can anyone else. There is hope found here in the words of Jesus. And I find it interesting that Jesus relates both to men and women. He uses the mustard seed and says, the man sows this. Then he references a woman, which rabbis rarely, if ever, did this. But Jesus continually references women all through his ministry and even reveals himself as a resurrected man to a woman first. So he's speaking here of his kingdom, that it's not just going to be made up of this type of person or this type of even sex, but it's going to be of equal value. And so it's beautiful. This is, this is intentional. This isn't just kind of thrown in here. Matthew and Jesus both are speaking of something that was countercultural, but beautiful. The small amount of leaven that's added is, is a ridiculous, uh, a small amount of leaven that's, that's added to this ridiculous amount of flour. And yet this incredible 39 liters of flour or 50 pounds of flour is totally leavened by taking a small portion of leaven to it. The flour doesn't limit the leaven. The leaven affects the flour. This is the point of Jesus giving us this. The, the leaven alters the flour. The flour doesn't alter the leaven. Jesus and his kingdom comes to the, to the wicked, evil earth, and he alters it. He saves it. He redeems it. He hasn't met his match with what our sin has brought to this earth or to ourselves. He is still stronger, and his grace still goes deeper. And one day, when his kingdom is finally complete, all misery will be removed. All brokenness will be done for. The brokenness and misery 
will not stop the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, from progressing forward. This should bring us magnificent hope when we consider the brokenness and misery of our world. Jesus and his kingdom has not met its match. All things distorted will be justified. All sorrow, all hatred, all grief will not even be a memory in the kingdom of God. Imagine with me this kingdom. Imagine a world without poverty, without sickness, without injustice. This is the kingdom of God. Imagine a world without racial strife or loneliness or comparison or preferential treatment. Imagine with me a world without guilt or unhappiness or mental illness or family breakdown. This is the kingdom of God. Imagine a world where all the brokenness, emotional brokenness, social brokenness, racial brokenness, spiritual brokenness, political brokenness, even physical brokenness. Imagine a world where all this brokenness is completely eliminated because all the opposition to God's love and his justice have been appropriately dealt with. This is the kingdom of God that Jesus is inaugurating. Imagine a world like that. Imagine how wonderful that would be. Jesus is bringing it. This is what we get to long for one day when all these things will be put away forever and always. Nothing can stop that kingdom from progressing. Nothing. Even Jesus later on in Matthew chapter 16 says that even the gates of hell will not prevail or prevent the kingdom. Nothing, nothing will be able to stop his kingdom from being built. Now, usually leaven is a, is a negative uh, comparison when used in scripture, but here Jesus is using it for the positive. Here Jesus uses leaven for uh, unpacking the, the positive, hidden, progressive, transforming infusion, much like leaven into flour, the, the transforming infusion of the kingdom of heaven in this world. The kingdom of heaven is active. The kingdom of heaven is active in this room. The kingdom of heaven is active in Nashville. The kingdom of heaven is active on our earth, in our world today. But it's not always visible to all. You see, the kingdom of God starts first within our hearts. And it begins to transform us. And that transformation leads to mission, leads to seeing it progressively moving forward into other people. So not all the time do we get to witness the physical realities of the kingdom of heaven, but sometimes we can. As we seek to, as we seek the kingdom of God, as we seek to fight the drift, because you don't just arrive at seeking, intentionally seeking the kingdom of God in your world today. It's, it's, it's something that we strive for, we work for, we can't just assume we're going to drift there one day. But as we fight to seek his kingdom to come on this earth as it is in heaven, as we seek his kingdom more and more, and as we seek the, the kingdom of our personal comfort and convenience less and less, I believe we're going to be privileged 
to see his kingdom magnificently, magnificently transform us, our neighborhoods, our city, and our world. I believe this to be true. The beauty of the gospel is that anyone, the filthiest of all, can be in this kingdom that I just described. Anyone. But the sad news of our sinful hearts is that some will reject Jesus and his invitation into this kingdom and be separated from him and his kingdom. As we're going to unpack here. Look in verse 34. All these things... Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is believed to be Isaiah. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds because he was teaching in a boat, addressing magnificently, uh, a magnificent size of crowd here. And he goes into this house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Speaking of himself, Jesus, the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. I love that he doesn't just say people of the kingdom. I love that he doesn't just say citizens of the kingdom, though that's still good news. I love that he breaks it down to very personal terms. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now this cat, he's not a a fictional character. He's not limited to cartoon graphics. If Jesus believed in the devil, we should too. He's very real. Satan, the devil, Lucifer... Even in our culture today, it seems childish to admit that we believe in such a character. But Jesus did. And again, we do well to believe as he did. This is our great enemy. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, the full consummation, the finishing of the kingdom. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Now, Jesus here is kind and he's patient to explain everything in great detail. He takes the time to do this, and in doing so, he's giving them uh, the teachings of the secrets of the kingdom that he alluded to earlier in chapter 13. Verse 41, 41, the Son of Man will send his angels And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is a very vivid and real depiction of an actual place. There are lots of theories Many books have been written, many sermons have been preached about what hell is and where it is and what it's like and, and all these things. And it's, it's all over the place. It's the, the theories are. I'm not going to speculate this morning. But what we do know for sure all throughout Scripture is that hell is a real place and it's horrible 
and it's forever. These things we can look at the holistic view of Scripture on the doctrine of hell and say, yes, it is, it is horrible, and it is forever. But it's horrific primarily because it is being separated from God and it's being separated from all things that are wonderful and good. As incredible as that, uh, the, the, the teaching of what the kingdom was like, I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but, but when I was preaching through what the kingdom, imagine a, a place, imagine a world like this, and I was going through all the brokenness and misery and all this removed, hell is antithetical to all of that. Hell is antithetical to all things that are truly good and helpful and true. This is what makes hell horrific. Here in this passage of scripture, we're given this parable, and this parable gives us a heavenly perspective. I was going to say 50,000 feet, but it's a heavenly perspective regarding the kingdom, specifically redemption. This is certainly terrible news. When I read this, when I read this verse, he's going to gather all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and cast them away with weeping and gnashing of teeth. I take my pencil and I write in the margin of my Bible, I'm in trouble. Because I'm a lawbreaker and I'm a cause of sin. I can't help but sin. One of the few things I do really well is sin. It's who we are. It's in our nature. This puts me in trouble here when I read this text. You see, none of us are perfect in this room. All of us are professional sinners. We can't help it. It just happens. It's part of our nature. There's some of us who have even broken the speed limit this morning, for instance, some of us who got a little bit too frustrated with the barista on our way here when we stopped by to get some coffee. Some of us drank a little bit too, too much last night. Some of us, like myself, find it all too easy to worship other gods than the God of the Bible. We sin. The point is, we're lawbreakers. The point is, we're not perfect. So when you read this, when I read this, this is why I write down, I'm in trouble. If he's really going to do this, I'm in trouble. But then look at verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then we can't look over these last few words. These last few words are a marvelous invitation this is extremely significant and profound, and Jesus doesn't waste words. Every word he utters is intentional, eternally intentional. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's, it's, a, it's a call for our attention. It's like, hey, if you've been drifting from my teaching, hear, like, don't, don't miss this. This, I feel like this is alluding to hope. Again, when I read my Bible, I stop at moments like this, and I write in the margin, redemption, question mark, 
He speaks of righteousness. He calls me to hear something as if something can change, as if there's something different that I could experience than, than what I am. And so I'm drawn, I'm drawn into this. He speaks of sons of the kingdom and not just the son, speaking of himself. So it's plural. So there's, there's at least somebody else involved in this kingdom. Is it possible that I can be part of this kingdom? Is it possible that you can be part of this kingdom? And then he talks about the kingdom of their father as if we can be so related to the farmer, to God, to use that parable analogy, like that we could call him daddy, that we could call him father. Is that, like, can I get in on that? And then the, the invitation to, to hear these words and not just gloss over them, but to hear them and understand them when he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Yeah, this passage has a lot of despair in it. And there's despair here in these words of Jesus. But there is a magnificent hope here found in these words of Jesus. What Jesus teaches in this parable, the cosmic truth that he brings down into concrete expression are essentially two things. There's probably a whole lot more. Uh, yeah, there's more. But there's two significant things that I want to guide us to. There's two big ideas that I want to guide us to this morning. The first is in the world today, there are two kingdoms. There's actually two orders of reality side by side contesting each other. Okay? The second truth, the second principle is he is teaching us that there is nothing more important in your life. There is absolutely nothing more important than to know the difference between those two crops, between those two kingdoms. Understanding the difference between those two kingdoms that are at work in our world today and to which one you belong to. It is of utmost importance for you to know the difference between these kingdoms and whether you belong to which, which one you belong to. There's these two points, there's these two crops, these two kingdoms, these two eternal realities that will one day be eternally separated. There are two orders of reality side by side in the world today, contesting, vying with each other. And I'm here to reiterate that it is imperative for you to know the difference between the two and for you to know which one you belong in. God the farmer, God the father, the, to use the, the language of Jesus here in this parable, is the one and the only one who will declare or determine who we are at the end of all things. He's the one who sifts and chooses and separates. Jesus says it right here. And as I studied this, I, write, I wrote in my Bible, which I believe is the appropriate question, is what does the farmer, what does the father think of me? If he's the one who's going to determine and be the judge of all things, what does he think of me right now? Am I wheat? Am I weeds? Or to take the parable to its theological conclusion, am I righteous or unrighteous? Am I united with Jesus through faith in him? Or am I eternally separated from him through my rejection of him? Am I perfect or am I flawed? There's no in-between. There's no sort of this 
or sort of that. There's wheat and there's weeds. There's saved, there's lost. And knowing that there are zero people who are perfect, there's zero people who are righteous in and of themselves, literally knowing that there's no hope for us, for any of us, God sent himself. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, on a rescue mission. He sent his son to save us by representing us in his perfect life, which is now ours by faith. His perfect life trumps my flawed life because he lived it for me as my representative. And he dies our death as our sufficient substitute, and he beats death through his resurrection. All this for us, all this working together to atone us of our sin and unite us back into relationship with the good Father. And those who are in Christ are made righteous, or the way I like to say it, they're made good enough. They're good enough now. But those who are not in Christ, but rather who are in themselves, if you will, are unrighteous. They're lacking righteousness. They're lacking everything that is needed. It's not even close. So how will God identify you? How does he identify you today? Jesus came to give you your new needed identity to where you're no longer imperfect, but perfect in the eyes of God. No longer insufficient, but now good enough. No longer rejected by God because of your sin, but now approved, accepted, adored, loved, welcomed. All because Jesus, how he became your sin and suffered for it in your place and killed the curse that you were under. This can be your story. This absolutely can be your story. My prayer is that you would respond by believing that God loved you enough to punish his son so that you could be eternally and unconditionally loved by him. And there's nothing you can do to earn your way into this love, into this perfect kingdom, except by faith believing Jesus, that he did this for you. Just believe. There is such hope here in the finished work of Jesus. Just believe. And then Romans 9 can be your story. Romans 9, 25 and 26. This can be your story. Those who are not my people, and I'm, I'm speaking from someone who's experienced this. That's why I say it can be your story. It is my story. But this can be for you too, for those who do not believe Jesus. Consider this. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. That's crazy, y'all. Okay? That's ridiculous. And that's only because of Jesus. And he continues. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called Sons of the living God. Right there in that place. I love how he said that. In the very place where it was told them, you are not my people. It's in that very place they will be called sons of the living God. In the very place where they were called weeds. 
Because of Jesus, they are called wheat. I love this. And what I love more than anything else is it's true. Now, Axe's family, my prayer is that we would fight the drift to forgetting our new identity in this finished work of Jesus Christ. How does he identify you today? How does Jesus identify you today when you sin, when you mess up? We must fight to remember and believe even this morning that there is now therefore no condemnation, shame, or guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't belong to us anymore. It belonged on Jesus on the cross. He took care of it. It's not our responsibility to feel shame or condemnation anymore. It's the finished work of Jesus. Jesus came to give your new needed identity. And this new identity doesn't get tainted when you sin. His blood still covers that too. We can't out the new identity that Jesus Christ provided for us. There is no judgment for us because Jesus was judged for us. There's no finger pointing at us because Jesus received all the finger pointing for us. There's no need to match up because Jesus eternally hits the mark consistently, always for us. And my prayer is that we would just believe this. That tomorrow, when we lose it, tonight, when we lose, before we even leave this room, when we just lose it and we become so infuriated about something, that we would believe it. That we will be drawn not to take on the curse of guilt again, but be set free by retreating to the cross instead of the closet of shame, running to the cross and experiencing that forgiveness that's there. My prayer is that we'll believe that heaven is real. And that we'll long for that place. And we won't leave it up for everyone over 80 to long for heaven. But that we'll be the young ones in the room who can't wait for heaven. It'll happen. When we get older, it'll happen. But it would be awesome if we could happen in here as 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, longing for heaven. And my prayers that we'll believe in hell too. That every day we'll be living in light of those two realities. That regardless of how old we are in this room, in a hundred years, there's two places where everyone in this room will be. And that we'll live in light of that epic, eternal reality. My prayer is that we'll grow in our belief of the completed, finished work of Jesus and that we will rid ourselves of our silence and apathy and that we will, each one of us, preach the goodness of God and pray for an ever-increasing burden for those who are dying and going to hell. And if you don't care and if you don't believe, ask God to help you believe in these things and ask for a burden to care. Pray for all those who live today forgetting that Jesus actually did enough. Pray for me that way because I forget and I've got to fix everything. I've got to take, I've got to wash my own self. I can't leave it up for grace to do its work. I've got to start doing more good things and staying away from bad things for a few days. And I'm not going to feel like I'm back in relationship with God again. If no one else is there, just pray for me in that way that 
that I'll embrace the fact that Jesus did enough today. Pray for those who are carrying the enormous weight of getting better on their shoulders every day. That heavy burden. Jesus took that for us. It's not yours. It's, it's awkward. It's defeating. It's limiting. It's, you're, you're stealing from Jesus and what he did on the cross for you. It's like he carried that for you. Give it back to him. It doesn't belong to you. you you've, you've stolen it. Let him handle that heavy yoke. Take his light yoke. It's easy. My prayer, church, is that we will see our cities, neighborhoods, Nashville, with the eyes of God, and that we would proclaim his excellencies in our neighborhoods and in our city and proclaim the world's insufficiencies until every person has heard in all of creation and responded to him, the real Jesus. Many have said no, like Pastor Jacob said. Many have said no to the wrong Jesus, and it's unfortunate. We need to go proclaim who he really is and, and let them respond to him. Because I believe when people get a glimpse of who Jesus really is, when they really see who Jesus is, and they win, when they really see who they are, I believe they respond to him in faith. It's just they haven't gotten a good glimpse of who they are and who he really is. This is our job as missionaries in this city. My prayer is that our lives can be summarized by this and it will flow naturally out of our conversations that we are missionaries of the gospel, that we're missionaries to the gospel to our hearts and to our city. Missionaries of the gospel to our hearts because if we're not careful, we'll, become, uh, we'll, we'll outgrow our need. This can't happen, but this is what we'll feel. We'll trick ourselves into outgrowing our need for Jesus and the gospel and we'll just be serving everybody Jesus, but we'll be starving ourselves. So we have to take the good news of the gospel to ourselves. We have, if we're going to call our city to repentance and to the cross, we've got to be repenting and going to the cross. Or else we become legalists, we become Pharisees, we become professional Christians, and the world has seen way too much of that. But we still need missionaries who are running to the cross and taking people there with them. May God help us take this salvation and this radical, can't mess this up, gospel to our hearts and to the lost and dying world for his fame and his glory and the salvation of our city and world. Let's pray together as Pastor Jacob comes and leads us in communion this morning. God, Lord, I, I ask that you help us believe this and not forget this. Lord, um, help us to believe that heaven is real and that hell is real. Lord, help us to grow in our belief in the completed, finished work of your perfect Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we see that because of him, we are now by faith perfect sons and perfect daughters. Lord, would you please make us faithful missionaries, both to our hearts, our first mission field, and to our city. Lord, grant to us your eyes to see ourselves, and give us your eyes to see our city.
for your fame and the salvation of the world. In Christ's name I pray, amen.